All right, guys. Well, if you have your Bibles uh, out, I would invite you to open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Turn on your phone, whatever you got to do to meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Go ahead and do it. If you need a Bible, we've got some somewhere in this room. You can get some from wherever that place is, I think. Oh, Craig, maybe. Put your hand up in the air and Craig will come over and stick a Bible in your hand, all right, if you need one. Uh, As a church, we've been walking through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we will do it for um, a good portion of this year. We'll take our time with this. If you remember last week, we talked about, um, as a church, we are sensing that, um, that we're in sort of this renewal phase as a people. And so this year, we're dedicating sort of as a year of renewal, where we want to see the Lord breathe His Spirit into us, give us new life, and really make it clear the purposes that He has for us. And so this, this book is incredibly useful for us. Um, as we've studied it and looked at it, you know that what we've seen already is that it's not a church without problems, right? Um, the reason why the, the, the letter was written was really to correct a lot of the things that had gone wrong in the church. Now, it's interesting to think of the timing of this letter. When this letter was written just a number of years after, just a handful of years after the Lord um, was crucified and um, rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. And it's pretty interesting if you think about how soon things got out of whack, Right, And so as we continue to study this, this book, we'll see one problem after another. And we'll see Paul write the, the word of the Lord come to the church to correct those things and to bring it in line with what God's purposes are for the church. And really, since this letter was written, it's no different than what we do every Sunday as God's people. Hopefully we do it every day as we look in his word. We're trying to take the things of our life as we... Um, see things that are broken and often inconsistent with the Lord and his will, that we would bring them into conformity through his word. Um, and we can't do that if we aren't regularly examining the scriptures and also examining ourselves, right? And making sure that they, our lives line up with God's word. So that's what our hope is um, as we study this passage. Um, I will say this um, before I read it. Uh, this is a really, is of the the... the chapters in this letter, this is one of the more difficult ones to understand because of the way that Paul writes. Um, Even in interpreting it, the original language is very, very difficult. As he writes in Greek, it's very difficult to to interpret and translate because he uses things like irony and sarcasm, okay? And so as we read it, you will see them. What I want to tell you in advance is, um, for your sake and mine, I'm not going to go through every technical detail of the chapter, okay? Um, if you get our regular weekly email, there will be a study guide that is attached in that. There will be every week. My encouragement is that as, as you kind of, as we dig a little beneath the surface here this morning, it would kind of um, give you an appetite for what maybe is some of the, the more di- complex things that are happening in the chapter and that you would go to that study guide to further your study of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, so I'm going to read it and then I will pray for our time together. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is the word of the Lord. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. 
I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. And none of you, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled... We bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere and in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God is not consistent talk but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This is the Lord's word. Let's pray for our time. Father God, thank you for this word this morning. Lord, as we consider it, we believe it to be eternal. We believe it to be true. Lord, I just pray that you would use it right now um, to help us um, become the people that you have designed and called us to be. Um, Lord, I pray that you would use it and uh, conform us into the church that you've um, called us to be, Lord. We love you and we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, if you have been around Parkview for many years, you will know the name Jesse Bradley. If you have not been around, you may know it, you may not, that's okay. Jesse Bradley was the, um, the original pastor who started 24-7, our college campus ministry. And uh, it was kind of, when it started was when I was a college student. So for me, some of the most formative years of my spiritual life, Jesse Bradley served really as a spiritual mentor. Um, as an individual who I looked to and modeled my life, and when I, when I wondered what it meant to be about Jesus, Jesse was oftentimes the individual who came to my mind. Well, shortly around the time when uh, he transitioned off of staff at Parkview and moved to a different part of the country to do ministry was shortly around the time that I was coming on to staff at Parkview. And I uh, was in my office one day, and he had just kind of cleared out his office, and he brought over a couple of things to give to me. One of the things he gave to me was a cassette tape. Um, and for those of you who don't know, it's, it's, a, 
it was a device that you could use to listen to something that had been recorded previously, okay? Something akin to a CD or an MP3. I don't know what the terms are these days. But anyway, so he handed me a cassette tape. Now, I did not have the means to play it for a matter of months because I didn't have a, I don't even know what you call it, a cassette player, I guess, is that was called? I didn't have a cassette player, so I didn't get a chance to listen to it. But it was a, it was a message um, by a man named Bill Wilson, whom I've talked about here before up front. Uh, eventually, I found a cassette record player, sorry, a cassette player, and I was able to listen to this message. Um, and it left a lasting impression on my life. And, and, and I'll tell you why. Bill Wilson, for those of you who don't know, is a, is a man who's a unique leader. He's a unique human being. Um, he does a unique ministry. He's just unique. Okay, if you listen to him or see him, you're going to think, there's a unique guy. He's really, really unique. Um, he has also has a unique story. In 1960, at the age of 12, he was dropped off, abandoned at a street corner in St. Petersburg, Florida, by his mother, left at a bus stop. For three days, he stayed at the bus stop and waited and waited and waited. Didn't know his mom wasn't coming back, but she had no intention of coming back. Eventually, there was a Christian man um, who was walking by, had seen him several times, and finally asked him what was going on, told him his story. So this Christian man took him, bought him a meal, and shortly thereafter sent him to a Christian camp. And it was at this Christian camp where Bill Wilson first heard the gospel. He, and he committed his life to the Lord, gave his life to the Lord, and he was radically transformed. The idea that there was somebody who loved him, who cared for him, and who would never leave him, as you could imagine, for a boy who was abandoned, meant the world. So he radically gave his life to the Lord. Bill would eventually graduate high school. He would go on to college. Shortly after graduation, he would get involved in the, a ministry in his local church. And eventually he would start a ministry where he would take out a bus and he would pick up kids in the community, kids who were in a similar position that he had once found himself in, and he would take them to church. Well, his ministry began to grow and grow and grow. And this would have been in the, in the 70s in St. Petersburg, Florida. And, and eventually thousands of kids were coming to church by this bus ministry that he was coordinating and facilitating. This model began to duplicate multiply across the nation so that you would see ministries pop up around the nation doing exactly the same thing. Eventually, Bill in 1980 would move to New York into Brooklyn where he would start this ministry in New York City and he would serve eventually hundreds of thousands of children every single Sunday. Over the years, as he did this ministry, Bill was shot, he was stabbed, he was beaten, and he was hospitalized multiple times for the work that he was doing. He would go into some of the darker places in the nation, places that he was not welcome, and he would offer hope um, by taking the gospel there. He now travels the globe and casts vision and generates support for this ministry, which has now been duplicated across the globe. So you can see him t talking in many, many different countries. He is a, his vision for ministry um, was really significant, very clear, and easily, easy for folks to latch on to and want to be a part of, right? Um, he was a very compelling leader, a very passionate leader. Um, but as I listened to the message, I want to be clear, what, what left an impression on me was not the nature of the work that Bill did. Okay? It, it, it wasn't the work that he was doing that left an impression on me. The, the thing that left an impression on me was as I listened to the story of Bill Wilson... Um, at the end of the message, he said this statement. I can't quote it word for word, but essentially what he said is, this is why every Sunday is my favorite day of the week. Because every Sunday to this day, I get in a bus, I drive a bus, and I pick up kids and bring them to church. Okay? 
So here's a man who built this massive ministry, wildly successful leader, and yet every single Sunday, he still finds himself behind the wheel of a big bus picking up kids. And he says, why is that so important for me? Because in those kids, as they walk on my bus every Sunday, I see myself in each one of those children. Why would I not find myself every week behind a bus doing exactly what essentially saved me? See, Bill gives us a different sort of, his idea and vision of leadership is unique. It's unique. Most leaders aren't going to find themselves, built a massive ministry, are going to find themselves every Sunday morning driving a school bus, picking up kids. Most leaders would say, it's not efficient, it's not a good use of my time, I could be doing other things, I've got people to do that. But Bill Wilson says, that's important to me. That left an impression on me. The reason it left an impression on me is because it is very, very consistent with what it means to be a Christian leader. See, Bill saw no task in his organization as being beneath him, right? His concept of what it means to be a leader is radically different than the concept that the world says, this is what leadership looks like. And what we discover as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is, is really this issue of Christian leadership has been sort of the issue at the heart of chapters 1 through chapters 4. It's the, it's the heart of the division that is happening in the church. And so Paul, at the end of this section, paints for them a picture of what true Christian leadership looks like. And what he says is important for us this morning important for us to remember. And its, it's big idea is that, that Christian leadership is not an exception to the way of the cross. Rather, it is, it is something that fully embraces the essence of what it means to live according to the cross. Okay? I don't know if that's... It's not a crispy, clear sentence, so I'll say it again. Christian leadership is not... Being a leader in Christianity is not being an exception... To what Christianity it is. What Christianity is. Rather, being a leader in Christianity is somebody who fully embraces the very essence of what it means to live the way of the cross. Which Paul has been unpacking for the first couple of chapters of 1 Corinthians. For us, this is a really relevant question. Because for many of us, we're asking the question as a nation, as a church, what is leadership? What is good leadership? What is true, genuine leadership? What should a leader look like? And there's no shortage of books, of courses, of material that would direct you to have a particular understanding of what leadership looks like. But, but Christian leadership at its core is very different. Now as we explore Christian leadership in this chapter... I want you to keep two things in mind. First is this. This passage doesn't tell us everything we need to know about what it means to be a Christian leader. Okay? The Bible has a great deal to say about leadership, about Christian leadership. And not all of it is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So what we're going to look at this morning is not an exhaustive list or passage, but it is a very helpful one, which I think really gets to the core of what it means to be a leader as a, a Christian leader. The second thing I want us to keep in mind is that some of you right now may be thinking, well, I'm not a Christian leader. 
I'm not a leader in the church. I don't serve. I don't lead a ministry. I'm not a deacon or an elder or a pastor. I'm not a Christian leader. And so you may be tempted to just stop listening. Okay? I encourage you not to stop listening ever on Sunday morning. I'm just kidding. But don't stop listening. Don't check out because this message is, is directly applicable to you. Remember, being a, a leader, being a Christian leader is not being an exception to what it means to be Christian, right? Rather, it is an intense focus and embracing of what it means to be Christian, right? We're often tempted to view leadership as an exclusive or an elitist club of people that operate under a unique set of qualifications and virtues. That's not how the Bible talks about Christian leadership. Rather, our idea of leadership is a focus on the very characteristics and virtues that shape Christian life in general. Okay? Now... A good example, just to point this out, is if you were to go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, Paul lays out a description of what is required for those who are leaders in the church. Qualifications. I'll just, just go there real quick. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to these words real quick. So he's, he's saying, here's the qualifications for an overseer. That's the, the heading of the passage. The saying is trustworthy and true. If anyone aspires to be the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Christian leadership is a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must, listen to some of these qualifications, be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So he goes on and lists. These are the qualifications of what it takes to be a leader, what God looks for in Christian leadership. What is remarkable about that list is how unremarkable that list is. Right? If you look at that list, those are simply characteristics that we would hope to see, and the Bible says in other places should be evident in everybody's life. With two quick exceptions. Should be a recent comfort and should be able to teach. Those are the two different qualifications for an overseer, Paul says. So this is not, so these pictures, this, this morning what we're going to do is look at three different pictures that Paul gives us of what it means to be a Christian. And what I don't want you to do is say, okay, that's for them. This picture describes this person's life, not mine, okay? Because remember, being a Christian leader is somebody who embraces the essence of what it means to be Christian, okay? So keep those two things in mind. I'm gonna, like I said before, this is not going to go, I'm not going to go all the way through this chapter. I'm just going to give you three images that Paul provides for us section by section of what Christian leadership looks like, okay? So the first we see in verses 1 through 7, and we learn this. The image that comes out of the text is that Christian leaders are stewards of the gospel. Verses 1 through 7, Christian leaders are to be stewards of the gospel. Verse 1, if you look down, it says this. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, if you remember, if you were with us last week in chapter 3, Paul has already described leaders as servants. If you remember the agricultural analogy, right? We are like servants, apostles, him and Apollos. They were like farmhands on a farm, right? They were servants. Well, he used this word servants again here in chapter 4. However, he uses a different word that we translate as servants. And the word uh, could 
literally be translated a slave who rose. This is a term that was used to describe a slave, a servant who rose at the lowest level of a boat. So a, a, a servant who's at the very lowest level of a boat rowing on the boat. That's the word that he uses here for servant. And in a world, in our world, it's interesting as you think about this, in our world, we tend to think of leadership as a ladder that somebody ascends to. And the, the more leadership you get, the higher up the, the ladder you go. And so the picture of a leader at the top of the ladder is somebody who has their hands clean, their shirts pressed, right? And they are like, they're living it, right? They don't have to do a lot of the, the grunt labor, Okay. Well, here Paul says, hey, it's the other way around. Christian leadership isn't a ladder you ascend. It's a position that you actually you descend. You go lower, right? You, you have dirty hands. You're grabbing onto the row, and you're going back and forth. You're laboring over and over and over again as a servant of Christ. It's a servant of Christ, a Christian leader is a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God, he says. Paul says that he and the other ministers should be referred to as servants who are stewards. During this time, it would have been common for a wealthy person to trust a servant to manage their wealth, to manage their property. Um, one image that comes to mind right away is Matthew 25, when Jesus talks about, tells the story, the parable of the talents. Maybe if you're familiar with the Bible, you may recognize it. If you're not, no worries. Matthew 25 says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants. This is Jesus talking, telling the story. It will be like a man going on a journey who tells his servants, and who calls his servants to himself and trusts them with his property. To one he gave five talents, to another he gave two talents, and to one he gave one, each according to their ability. So this, this manager, this, this wealthy individual has three servants. Before he goes on a journey, he gives five talents. One talent would equal 20 years wages. He gives five of those 20-year wages to one, two of those 20-year wages to another, and one 20-year wage to a third. He leaves well, the one who received five talents, traded, dealt well with those five talents, saw the talents increase, so he had five more talents. The one he gave two talents did likewise, invested, traded, dealt well with what he had been entrusted with, and he saw an increase, two more talents. The one who had one did not do that. What he did is went in the backyard, dug up a hole, and dropped the money in it, buried it, and was like, cool, I'm good. <laughs> it ain't going nowhere, right? It's not going to increase, but I ain't going to lose nothing, Right? Well, the individual wealthy man returns and he sees these two servants who saw their talents increase. He saw how they stewarded their money, how they managed it in such a way that it would cause it to grow and multiply. And his response, his reaction when he sees these two, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. But then, as he discovers the third servant and how he dealt with the one talent, his reaction could not be more different. It says, you wicked and slothful servant. You ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. See, he, didn't, he wasn't a good steward. There was no increase in what had been given to him. He was not a good steward. So the individual condemns him. He commends the other two and condemns him because he was not an effective steward. He was not a good steward with what had been given to him. Christian leaders are compared to servants who have been given something, right? 
As leaders, as followers of Jesus, we have been entrusted with something. And it is therefore our obligation to steward the something we've been entrusted with well. Right now you should be asking, what have we been entrusted with? Well, the text tells us, mysteries of God. Mysteries of God. This is the type of language that Paul has already been, been using to talk about the crucified and the, res, the resurrected Christ. So when Paul says that leaders are stewards of the mysteries of God, he's more than likely referring specifically here to the gospel. The thing that he has given them that expects them to manage and to steward well is the gospel itself. Remember, all Christians are called to serve Christ. All Christians are entrusted with the secret wisdom that has been given by the Spirit. And if this is true of all Christians, how much more ought it to be true about leaders? Christian leaders have been entrusted with the gospel. God has revealed to them the things that have been hidden prior. And now in the coming of Christ, he's made it known. And they have received the gospel. And as a result, they are to be good stewards. They are to steward it wisely and to spread it widely. That's what it means to be a steward of the gospel. To this end, Christian leaders must prove faithful. Look at verse 2. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. Of this task, stewarding the secret things of God, leaders must never relent. They must prove faithful in this task and must prove faithful to God and to God alone. And this is what Paul tells us in the following verses. Christian leaders are preoccupied not with the applause of men, but with the approval of God alone. It's a very important thing for us to hear in our day and age. When we're constantly, and this is no different than what it would have been for them in Corinthians, but constantly tempted to want to appease the world around us. To sound like they do. Because when we sound like they do, it limits our difficulty, right? It limits our persecution. They begin to like us. Guys, we are not called to operate in a way that will generate applause from men. We are primarily called to live our lives, to, to, to lead our church in a way that pleases God alone. Listen to what he says in verse 3. It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. He doesn't really give a rip what they think of him, okay? This is refreshing. Not concerned with winning a popularity contest. He doesn't care. He doesn't even care what he thinks of himself, right? He's not judging himself. Why? Because it is the Lord who judges. It's the Lord who judges it's so tempting for us to pander to what is popular. And in doing so, we neglect the thing that has been trusted, entrusted to us, the gospel itself. A true servant of God is an individual, is a person who stewards God's wealth and is concerned primarily with pleasing God. Not a, pol a political party, okay? But God. Not friends or the workplace, but God. That's who we are concerned to please. There's a constant temptation here, a constant temptation for us. Second image that comes up, verses 8 through 13. Christian leaders are like spectacle. They're like a spectacle to the world. This next section provides us with some more difficult verses to understand in really the whole letter. 
We read them, when, as we read them, we recognize immediately that Paul is, is issuing an indictment on the church at Corinth through biting irony and sarcasm. And you can hear it in his tone. He says in verse 8, Already you have all that you want. The Corinthians view themselves is, the view of themselves is radically askew. They see themselves as spiritually filled, therefore they have no hunger, no need. They're good. They don't need anything, right? They've arrived, you could say. Already you have become rich. They consider themselves abounding in the riches of this world. And they don't seek true spiritual wealth. There's no desire that they have in them to heed the words of Jesus, that they should lay up treasures in heaven. Without us, you have become kings. They see themselves as ruling. They want to rule in this world. Paul sarcastically declares, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. You can hear his sarcasm. What Paul is accusing them of is surrendering to the pagan world around them. The Corinthian church had acquiesced to the world these people were so arrogant and full of pride and they were determined to be seen as significant by worldly standards. Their determination to be somebody had caused division, what we looked at already, within the church. But Paul also wants them to know it doesn't just pr pr uh, provide division and result in division. It's also a flat-out rejection of the way of Jesus. It is completely inconsistent with the way of the cross when you behave that way. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. The picture he paints would have been a familiar one to the people of Paul's days. Whenever a victorious general would return home after conquering some people, they would parade through the streets. The generals would be up front. The, the leaders would be up front leading a parade of people through the streets behind the, the the generals and the leaders you would find the nobles and the generals of the captured people and at the very end of the parade came the soldiers who were to be thrown to the wild beasts in the arena while the corinthian christians were were boasting and this is the problem as you as you see that parade going through the city the corinthian christians saw themselves as the the the, the front of the parade the, the noble generals, the victorious soldiers who conquered people. What Paul is saying is that, that yes, you belong in this parade, but, but as Christian leaders, we are actually like the tail end of the parade. We, he's trying to redirect their focus. This is not what it means to be a Christian leader. Up here, head high, boasting in your accomplishments. Rather, you are at the very end of the parade. You are like those captured soldiers, captured people who are sentenced ultimately to death who will be torn apart, and that is what people will be applauding and crying out for. That is who you are as a Christian leader. At the end of the parade, you're in the wrong place. So the apostles, Paul himself, has become like a spectacle to the world that the world looks at and mocks and laughs and ridicules. Not a spectacle of strength and triumph, but one of suffering and defeat. This is who you are, he says. Look at verse 10. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. You see the sarcasm he's doing here. We are weak, but you are strong. 
You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Verse 11, to the present hour, we hunger. He's talking of himself, Apollos, the other ministers, the other leaders in the church. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. I mean, this is his description of his present state. This is what leadership looks like. The Apostle Paul, the founder of their church. This is what leadership looks like. Hungry, thirsty, poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless. We labor working with our own hands. When reviled, when people revile, guess what? We bless them. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world. That's his description. That's the picture he has and holds up for Christian leadership. I mean, this is radically different than the picture that our world says, this is what it looks like to be a leader. This is radically different, but it's completely consistent with the way of the cross. This is the very characteristic that the Corinthians are avoiding in their life. Paul says he wants to hold it up as exemplary. Weakness, hunger, homelessness, labor. We're not embraced by the world. We're seen like scum. As you read this, you're thinking to yourself, it doesn't make any sense. Why, why would you have leaders who are mocked at the center of your leading your movement? Why would you have leaders who are rejected? Don't you want those who everybody else says, yes, we value these people, these men and women. This is, this is what's valuable and significant in our world. Let's, let's follow them. Isn't that what you want? Why would you have it designed this way? Well, Paul is very clear. I mean, as we're reading this description, it should sound like another description, right? It should sound like the description of somebody else. Our great leader, the shepherd, the great shepherd of the flock, who himself in Isaiah 53 says, had no former majesty that, should, that anyone should look at him, had no beauty that anyone should desire him. He was despised. He was rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men would hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The reason, Paul says, leadership would look at like this at the very end of the parade is because that's what Jesus looked like. Right? And Paul says, because that's who Jesus was, because he suffered and endured and was persecuted, was mocked because he stood for things like grace and truth, that's who I'm trying to be like. And because I'm modeling my life after Jesus and his sufferings, guys, you should look to me and you should look like this as well. Not like that, boasting in your accomplishments, pandering for applause. It ain't that. Paul can hold himself up as an example because he's following the example of Christ. Guys, in a world where we are desperately in need of authentic leaders, this is the picture we look to. We look to men and women who are humble, right? Who are humble, who do not think so highly of themselves that they are disconnected from the people, but rather they go low to serve the people. This is what Christian leadership looks like. Finally, in verses 14 to 21, we see one last image. And again, I'm not exhausting these verses. I'm just kind of flying over them. Verse 14 to 21, Paul's, and the image that we see finally is Christian leaders are spiritual parents. Spiritual parents. So we have stewards of the gospel. We have a spectacle to the world. 
and spiritual parents. Paul's words to the Corinthians have been so far sarcastic and pointed. He pauses here in verse 14 to assure them of his deep love for them. I do not write these things, he says in verse 14, to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul had been their spiritual father and that he gave them the gospel and helped lead them to Christ. As their father, Paul sees himself as responsible for these people. He's their parent. Yes, he has authority over them. The hope is that he would instruct them and they would hear it. He could admonish them. They would take his words. He has authority over them, but he also guides them and he loves them. In verse 16, Paul issues what is the only command in this chapter, and it's as such we should zero in on it. Verse 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. If you've been around Christianity long, you'll see that this is at the very core of what discipleship is. Be imitators of me. Paul says it in other places, 11.1, 1 Corinthians comes to mind, follow me as I follow Christ. But what's unique about this particular verse in its context is that, remember, Paul is talking specifically about his suffering and his rejection of the pagan world. He's doing this because he, he is challenging the Corinthians in their embracing of the world. Paul wants them to imitate his unwavering commitment to follow the way of the cross in all of life, regardless the outcome. Regardless of the reception by the watching community, he wants them to follow his values, his priorities, his example. The Corinthians must divert their attention away from the world and toward the cross. And this is the job of a Christian leader, right? That we don't take our cues from the broader culture, but we take our cues from the cross. It is the way of life for us as a people. To accomplish this end, towards this end, in verse 17, Paul says, that's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. So you see the chain. Timothy is coming to you. Timothy's watching me. I'm watching Jesus. Now you, if you're watching Timothy right, guess what you're going to start to look like? Jesus, okay? Paul sending Timothy not to lay down new teaching, but to remind them of the ways in Christ, to show them specifically what it looks like to live this way. And this is the job of a Christian leader today. The responsibility not just to teach the gospel, but also to embody and to model the gospel as well. To show what the gospel looks like as it is lived out in the context of everyday life. You know, I mentioned earlier uh, Jesse Bradley's sort of role in my spiritual formation. And, um, you know, it's funny because as I think back to, you know, I sat underneath his teaching for four years, in his ministry for four years, as I think back to um, my time with him in ministry, I could not quote to you one thing this man said from behind a pulpit. I could not tell you one, I couldn't tell you one thing. I mean, I remember an illustration with some lemons. He had some lemons up here and it was... I don't remember what in the world he was talking about with them lemons, but he had some lemons on stage. I remember that. The thing I remember most, the, the, the greatest impression that he left on my life was the way that he lived his. 
The greatest lesson that he taught me was, was, was not when he was necessarily, I mean, don't get me wrong, he was helpful. Like, I owe a great deal of my, deal of my understanding of God's word to his teaching, right? But the, 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 the lessons that seared themselves in my mind were the, the car rides with him to McDonald's or to the grocery stores. Watching him share his faith with people who did not know Jesus. Watching him be kind and compassionate to those who may be down and out. Watching him just live his life. Those were the greatest lessons that he taught me. And as leaders, I mean, you have to obviously be an individual of integrity to be able to say this. Follow me as I follow Jesus. It's not a claim to perfection, right? But it's a claim of of a pursuit, a singular pursuit of the cross. In order for the church at Corinth to properly follow Jesus... To serve, or sorry, to sever their connection with the world around them, they needed parents. They needed people to spiritually parent them. They needed to have leaders who were committed to living the way of the cross, and they needed to be committed to following them. And that's what Christian leadership is. Follow me. I mean, it can be summed up in those words. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Follow me. As I follow Jesus. So finally, I just want to ask you three questions, then I'm done. And these are just questions for you to reflect on. And I would encourage you to write them down. I would encourage you to reflect on them today. First question is this Who do you look like? Who do you look like? Paul gives us a very clear description of not just what a Christian leader is but also what a Christian is. When I'm reviled, I bless. When I'm persecuted, I endure. Hands that are dirty. People who have gone low. Who don't think too much of themselves, right? Who do you look like? Does your life sound like Paul's? Weak, hungry, thirst, persecuted? Scum of the world. Second question I want to ask you is, who do you look at? Or who do you look to? I'm not sure what the best way is to phrase that. Who are you looking at? Who are the men or the women that God has placed in your life, has gifted you with, who are pursuing Jesus that you should be following that you should be imitating. Who is, who's turning around and saying, follow me as I follow Jesus in your life right now? And the third question is, who is looking to you? Who's looking to you? So if we are doing this right, if we are, if we are I mean, this is, his, this is his path away from some of the problems that are happening in the Corinthian church. His, his, his means of correcting what has gone off the rails is saying, follow me. I'm like a spiritual father for you. Follow me. And as we consider where we are as a people, our church, our country, our world, like we have to be honest that there's places that we could shore up, right? There are certainly conversations that we could have. 
There are, there are things we could do to make our church look more like the church that God has designed us to be. And there always will be. So you can rest assured, you know, this side of eternity, we're always going to have work to do. One of the worst things that we could do is act like we've got to figure it out. If you're new here today and you think that, oh, maybe this is a church that has to figure it out, I'll take care of that right now. We don't, <laughs> right? We are constantly, constantly under construction. And that's good for us to recognize. But at the same time, there should be people who are looking at each of you as you follow Jesus. And wouldn't this be a sweet culture to have here? I mean, I, I know it's happening in ways and places. Um, but that we would take responsibility for each other's spiritual growth. That it would not just be the person or people who are up front that are responsible for that, but that we would move into relationships with one another where we would say, I care so deep. I mean, he's writing these words because he cares deeply for them. He loves them, right? And that we would, sh we would put our money where our mouth is and that we would show our love for one another by saying, follow me as I follow Jesus. And then I can... I, it's so just a matter of using your imagination and dreaming of what God might do through this church. Not just would he use this culture to create health and renew us as a people, but also use us to what Paul is trying to say the first Corinthians, the Corinthians should be doing, is actually influencing the culture around them and making an impact in the world. I mean, there are so many conversations that are happening right now that the Bible has a tremendous amount to say about. And as Christians, what we don't want to do is avoid them, but we take God's truth, and as people of grace and truth, we step into them armed with truth. Okay. Why don't you stand? Actually, no. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray, and then Wayne's going to come and lead us in communion. Father God, Lord, I do pray for that. I pray for a culture here where we would take each other's spiritual growth seriously that we would feel responsible for one another, and that this would be a place that if we're feeling weak, that we could come to be strengthened. Um, and if we have energy, that, we're gonna, that we'd be able to come to pour out and invest in one another, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would guard us from being puffed up like the Church of Corinth with pride. Lord, but that we would be real and deal honestly with ourselves and our great need. And we thank you, Lord, that you're a God who has provided above and beyond all that we need so that we can be the people that you have called us to. We love you and we ask these things in your name. Amen.